the burden of perfectionism and, and the kind of cultural mandates to be perfect or to be better than you are or capable of being do cause real psychological discomfort and and spiritual unease low anthropology is an idea of human beings as a need of not just help yeah. from other people but help from god and ultimately deliverance from god the living church serving the episcopal church and the anglican communion since 1878 Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. I was never very good at limbo. Were you? Are you, for that matter, good at limbo? I remember repeated forced limbo games in school on spirit days or athletics days or the occasional picnic. The attempt to sincerely try to get as low as I could go in front of everybody? Well, the chances of failure too high, too high for my pride. I was gangly, averse to physical embarrassment, so instead of really trying, I made a really great show of failing. If I couldn't win, I'd make people laugh. I'd flail my arms and I'd knock down the pole. They couldn't make me go low. It was my little form of protest, my little version of perfectionism. Mockingbird Ministries director David Zoll has just released a book called Low Anthropology in hopes of reaching a perfectionism-saturated culture with the grace and love of God. The life God has for us of joy, peace, and yes, righteousness, becoming better at being human, begin and subsist first and always in humility and a realistic view of ourselves and others. So how low can your anthropology go? If that book could have spoken to my limbo-evading self, it might say, Enough with the pretense, dear, goofy, misguided child of God. You're going to fail. You're going to look stupid and be ridiculous. You're going to do it wrong. It's not about how low can you go, really. You're human. You're already pretty low. The difference is, do you want to go through this with grace? And even some genuine laughter along the way. David Zoll is founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries and editor-in-chief of the Mockingbird website. Dave also serves on the staff of Christ Episcopal Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, as college and adult education minister. He's the author of A Mess of Help, From the Crucified Soul of Rock and Roll, Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. And his newest book is, of course, Low Anthropology, The Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. Our interviewer today is the Reverend Zach Coons, rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas, and Mockingbird Ministries is a partner of the Living Church Foundation. Keep tracking with Lent. We're almost there. A word about our human plight is, through Jesus, always a word of hope, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Dave, what's a low anthropology approach to someone that doesn't know how to host a podcast interview. Patience, tolerance, and uh, laughter. That's the, the low anthropology. You know, the, the, your book is funny, man. And I was, only, I was only a few pages in, and I was like, he's definitely going to mention Bo Burnham. And then, sure enough, I was like, yes! But I, you know, and there was even a section about it towards the end of the book, but one of the kind of fruits of low anthropology is humor, you said. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, it, our ridiculousness is funny, especially if, if it's paired with a kind of like Christian sense of hope. Most of my favorite comedians like Bo Burnham are people that seem to find humor in 
human irrationality. And so, Absolutely. You know. I mean, I, I, I think I've come to see comedy as one of the most compelling mediums that's right at our fingertips these days. There used to be famous theologians, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like Reinhold yeah. Niebuhr, like Karl Barth, you know, where they were like in, in Time Magazine, like there are no famous theologians anymore. In a way, that mantle has kind of transferred to comedians. Like they are in a way like public intellectuals, you know, people have mm -hmm. different feelings about Dave Chappelle, but he is a public intellectual and he is kind of surfing in a lot of the same water that that famous theologians used to. I mean, I agree. I think that comedians have, have like come to fill, especially in recent years, have come to fill that w cultural spot or space of preaching. And that can be troublesome, but also exciting because anyone who's done any kind of public speaking, preaching especially, knows that what some the high wire act that some of these com comedians are doing in order to pierce your defenses is is an art form and mm -hmm. we can learn something from it mm -hmm. thank you for writing this book it's awesome i really enjoyed it i i wish that i wish i could give it i wish i could go back in time and give it to myself 10 years ago the book articulates a lot of what i feel like i have learned just in the trenches of ministry for the last 10 years i mean i think that when i was first ordained i was you know, really excited to unleash my newly acquired theological arsenal on the unsuspecting populace in the pews, you know, like, and it was just going to be a matter of, in my mind, just getting a small group of radically committed Christians. And if I just shared with them the right information, then we would finally fix the church forever. <laughs> you know, I mean, but of course, as you, as the people in the pews become individuals do you realize that most people are just in pain mm. that most people experience life as as fragile and that they are the barrier to entry for them into any kind of more serious consideration of of radical christianity is just needing to hear a word of love and grace and mm. and and so you know i i was just reading the book thinking man i wish i would have read this a long time ago wow that's a that's a high high compliment. This book is not just for Christians. This book is not just for church going people. You could say this is a book of Christian apologetics. You're saying, hey, let's talk about human beings. Let's talk about the human experience, and then you start there and you kind of back into. Actually, it turns out that Christianity has a couple of things to say about this, like mm. as an example almost. Mm. And you know, for example, the whole thing you do about sin, you're like, let's 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 not use the word sin. Let's just, let me describe a few aspects of the human experience that we all probably share, right? Doubleness, self-centeredness. Everybody's like, yeah, cool. I'm on board. That all makes sense. I feel all that. And you're like, oh, by the way, we call that sin. There's <laughs> <laughs> a much shorter term for it. <laughs> exactly. But I think that's really effective because as soon as, of course, as soon as you say the word sin, everybody's like, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I've heard that vocabulary word. I have wounds around that vocabulary word in my past. So let's kind of back into the idea. So yeah, I think I just I think you do a really delicate job of making it a quite effective work of apologetics. I had a really nice <laughs> low anthropology moment the other day. I was riding my bike and as happens occasionally you get some person in a car that thinks that roads are not for bicycles, you right. know. Yep. And so 
this woman, me and my buddy were riding, and and she blared on the horn, you know, ride on the sidewalk, and flipped us off on the way. And, of course, she did not anticipate that she would be stopped at a red 50 <laughs> yards into the future. Yeah. And, of course, I was, I, you know, you go through your own emotions in those moments. I was, I was frightened, and then I was mad. But by the time that I had gotten up to her stopped car, I had calmed down. Mm-hmm. And... And and I was standing right next to her, and I just kind of tapped on her window, and I was and I said, "Are you okay?" <laughs> which was which was for me like a real moment of I I have reached some level of I have been converted to lower anthropology in some way because mm. I had enough time to get over my own fuming rage to yeah. consider what has this person's morning been like. You know that she's probably dealing with some other internal exactly difficulties that would make her that short and willing to like blare at a perfect stranger on a bike. But I think you know the thing that I there's a lot to commend about the book. I think my favorite chapter is low anthropology and the self because I think it to me is most directly in conversation with you know, for lack of a better term, kind of new age spiritual Twitter advice. Just this kind of tendency just to baptize whatever you already feel deep down mm. and then to and then to call it self-care. Yeah. And you give us a much thicker, kind of more nuancing, complex invitation into what it means to be gracious to yourself. And what's the subtitle? I have it here. The unlikely key to a gracious view of others and yourself. Once you start to see other people around you as fragile, broken, vulnerable creatures, only then can you begin to see yourself as also as a fragile, vulnerable creature. Yes. Something along those lines. The burden of perfectionism and, and the kind of cultural mandates to be perfect or to be better than you are capable of being do cause real psychological discomfort and and spiritual unease or in the way that the culture really talks about it is sort of getting back to some authentic view of your some authentic experience of yourself and it, it doesn't allow for the fact that sometimes your authentic desire is to you know hurt the person next to you yeah. or that you're conflicted. You can be, you know, that yeah. the person you you thought you were authentic when you were 25, and yeah. you look back and you're like, wait a second, I was completely caught up in what my parents wanted me to be, or mm. what my youth minister had told me to do, mm. and I wasn't authentic at all. And that that's just a, a, a phantom that can create a tremendous amount of navel gazing and really disallow you from the experience of like other people and loving your neighbor that actually does form a person into a, a more I, would, I wouldn't say authentic, but authentically loving or compassionate person. Mm. I quote Augustine in there. He yeah. says, I, I, yeah. I am to myself a vast enigma. Yeah. I hope there's some freedom in there. I'm trying to, I think, I, I try to instill or praise a kind of a healthy self-suspicion that I think is not really seen as a virtue because usually self-suspicion is, is kind of like a, viewed as close to self loathing or some self-harm or like you don't believe in yourself or you don't want a kid to doubt themselves right and i think that i'm not talking about self-doubt i'm just talking about these ironclad ideas we have of who we are 
that function like a prison. I was listening to a, some sort of podcast where they were talking about mental health on, on campus and mm. on the college campuses and, and the need for mental services have gone up so dramatically. And anyone who's involved, I'm involved in campus ministry here at the university. And we know this to be true. We have people who are in the various helping professions in our church. And they say, we cannot accommodate all of the need and we're putting all this money towards it. And I was reading about one college that said, as part of the intake process, before they will schedule an appointment with you as a 19-year-old, they give you a list of five different organizations you, you can volunteer for. And the idea is for two weeks, go and volunteer a little bit and sort of make, you know, get out of your head a little bit and be of use to someone else. If they want you to just try to volunteer. I thought mm -hmm. that was, that's deeply in line with the low anthropology. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was going through the developmental cycle of a seminary and you know i had left a new testament theology class we had been reading you know some of the big bad guys of 19th century theology you know trelch or something like that and i left the class and i i realized i wasn't a christian anymore because i the intellectual blow that my hole had just sustained was mm. leaking my my faith was sinking to the bottom <laughs> and it was this real like the sobering awful, you know, existential despair kind of moment. And I went and had a meeting the next day with my kind of mentor, spiritual director. And, and he said, you know, when I find that faith is not happening for me, I always try to go spend time with those for whom faith is happening. And mm. if you read the pages of the New Testament, it seems that faith happens much more easily and much more abundantly for those that are on the margins of society. Which was yeah. his very huh. gentle way of saying, stop being so self-centered. <laughs> like, get out of your own head for one second. So you go, were visit actually... a, go visit a prison. Yeah. I was, I was just reading a newsletter from a, a theologian that I admire who said that he was into kind of like celebrating doubt and, and lament and, you know, as a, as a, as a slightly half deconstructed Christian really trying to sound sophisticated. And mm. then he went and volunteered inside a maximum security prison and mm. realized these guys knew full well what it meant to doubt and to feel a lament. And they're like, preach some hope. Tell us yeah. about, you know, tell us about heaven. Talk to us about forgiveness and guilt. His faith came alive in this moment where he was dealing with the least of these and people that were... Mm -hmm. That actually shed light on the larger predicament that all of us are in, just kind of fail to see it. But I hope a low anthropology part of that chapter, and I was a little nervous about that chapter, Zach, because it does cut across the grain. If you really know what I'm, if you really sense what I'm trying to do in that chapter in a kind of a winsome way is yeah. to debunk a lot of the, or at least push back, that's the common word, against some of the presuppositions about what it means to live a purposeful life. Yeah. Uh, it is, it, I, as a Christian, I think it's to be other-centered and God-centered. That is one, to me, of the central like psychological reliefs of the gospel mm. is that um, you don't have to just be yourself. <laughs> you <laughs> know that, that we're, means. Yeah, yeah, whatever that means in the first place. But I just feel like it's how paralyzing it is that the culture is just telling young people, just be yourself, just be yourself, just be yourself. If you don't, you know, if, if, if knowing yourself is something that's fundamentally difficult in the first place, all you're doing is you're trying to turn further and further inside mm. to find answers 
that aren't there. But again, I think, you know, one of the psychological releases of the gospel is that you're called out of yourself into the life of God and you find that in in the lives of others and in the church yeah. <laughs> yeah in the church yeah, yeah. I, I sort of got to the point in my life which I never thought I'd be where I would just be like just go to church see what it's like <laughs> exactly <laughs> you will get drawn not only out of yourself you'll get drawn into history as and as well as the, the future the past as well as the future and just in the life of the court collective rather than simply yourself but you will also be addressed individually which is important yeah I, I mean i've given this advice to to many people in the last year specifically like like people who are around my age who you know only in in deep dark hallways would admit that they still have some flicker of faith inside of them but still are struggling with with loneliness and meaning making in the world and like i Ooh. say just find a church, go five minutes late, leave five minutes early, go sit in the back pew and just sit in a space in which you are not the only, you know, mm. person that matters that you're not the you're not the center of the whole universe. And, and just just, you know, I'm not saying you're going to walk out feeling great, but just do it for a while. And then do a, different, di do a different kind of temperature check. I find that I find myself saying that here at St. Mark's all the time. I say, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to go to church. Mm. Like there are so many, you know, call them horizontal benefits of going to church that are answers to so much of what I see people trying to find on the internet is yeah. I'm lonely. I'm trying to make meaning out of the world. I would like to find that meaning in the context of other relationships. Like here is a community that you can, you can come be a part of every Sunday. There's free childcare. <laughs> you know, at St. Mark's, we have breakfast tacos every Sunday. Ooh. You can just hang out on the hang out on the deck and you can sit through a church service. And I, I mean, like you can get to know other people who live in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Be in it's relationship with them. A, a little silence, too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> without, exactly. Without yeah. Your, without your phone. Yeah. yeah. So the book is dedicated to your mom and dad. Mm -hmm. uh, you say your dad is the one that created this phrase, right? low anthropology yeah i think so i, I mean i <laughs> you know I, I i looked around to try to find it in other places and it all traced back to him right 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 i mean i'd heard people talk about an augustinian anthropology or a pauline anthropology right. or a marxian anthropology but i in terms of high low he was the one that he would always talk about it in terms of a a low anthropology goes hand in hand with a high Christology, mm. and it was just a sort of an easy way to for people to talk about it. But yeah, I know you talk about this a little bit in the book, but mm. what does he mean then? I guess by saying a low anthropology pairs well with a high Christology, because you're using you're using the phrase low anthropology in a it's not quite a direct analogy to the way that we use the language of high and low Christology. No, I would say. we can get into that, but yeah, just tell me a little bit more about what you think. Well, I mean, he was—he's always been uh, pretty focused on human suffering, and or just like the, the the undulations of what it actually feels like to be a person in the world. My so my father, those people don't know, he's a, he's a, a theologian and a, and a retired Episcopal minister, and I think one of the great 
yeah, advantages or just the benefits of his ministry, as I've heard over the years, is people feeling recognized in his description of what it feels like to be alive. Before you even, he, they, they love his his understanding of God's grace, and that seems to be transformative, but it's always paired with a psychological acuity about, and humor, about the, just the day-to-day grind of life. Mm. And so, um, yeah, when he would, he would try to, paint a, a picture of God's mercy and what he would call one-way love, just the, the grace of God, that he said that that doesn't really make much sense outside of a person needing that. So mm-hmm. he, uh, to draw, a uh, low anthropology is an idea of human beings as a need of not just help yeah. from other people, but help from God and ultimately deliverance from God. And, you know, it's, it's I think we're kind of dealing with some of the, the, the testimony of the saints who, as they get older, they sort of move into a deeper dependence on God and a deeper awareness of their own need for God and, and the, the, the largeness of the incomprehensibility, the mystery, in fact, even of God. So when he would say, if you have a view of human beings as sort of good and getting better and needed of a little advice or a pep talk or sort of a slight infusion of, of, of willpower, well, then your your view of God will be, or of Jesus will be, as a sort of a moral exemplar, a teacher. But you won't have a, a view of God as the one who raises the dead. Mm. You know, remarkably, while I was writing the book, Zach, both of my parents had major sort of life-threatening illnesses that they mm. went through, heart stuff that almost killed them. Mm. My my dad went into sepsis and. Um, was just because of an infection and almost died. And the, about 11 months later, my mother had open heart surgery to fix mm. an aneurysm. And, and so I was thinking very much about their own deaths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in that moment, I knew I wanted to dedicate the book to them because I hadn't done that before. And I was thinking, I right, better do this before they die. Mm-hmm. But also when you're focused on death as again, it's another, by the way, horizontal benefit of church i think is that you just hear about death in absolutely. a way that you to, you're not going to hear about it elsewhere and absolutely it's allow you to appreciate your life perhaps in certain ways but for me it was like i want a christianity my faith if it doesn't come alive if it doesn't have something to say to me in the midst of my my the bodily expiration then i'm just not that interested in it if it's only mm. about living well and not sort of eternal life or dying well, well then I just, it, it's a less urgency for me. So a, a, a high Christology, a view of God, Jesus as sort of a nosebleed high Hebrews like metaf- you know, cosmological Christ as savior and redeemer and sustainer, like that's what I want to talk about. And so how do I talk about that effectively with modern people? If everything about our culture is hiding us from the fact that we're going to die and if we're, it's always yeah flattering us with ideas about our capacities and our lack of limitation and our optimization. I might be drawn to Christianity as as one spiritual product among many, but as 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 far as like the resurrection of the dead, that is mm. was, that would be too abstract. So how do I how do I get to a place where emotionally and intellectually that kind of solution would be of interest? And in that that way you have to sort of carefully outline the problem. Yeah. Um, You know, at the grocery store, if you use your debit card, it's going to ask if you want cash back. I often say yes, just so I can have an extra five bucks in my pocket. You never know when you're going to need that cash. But it turns out as often as not that it's someone else who could use the five bucks. 
And this reminds me that monthly support of the Living Church podcast is about the same amount. Just like the bit of grocery store cash lying around, it can go to a good cause. If you enjoy this show, it might be time to become a monthly supporter. Your support is a gift that you can feel great about, encouraging, equipping, and entertaining Christian leaders, serving the Anglican family. Support options include $0.99, $4.99, and $9.99 a month. To share a little love with TLC, go to anchor.fm forward slash living dash church and click support, or just click the link in the show notes today. Another book I was thinking about frequently as I was reading yours was Oliver Berkman's book, 4,000 Weeks. Has new right, one, yeah. And I notice he has a blurb on, on the back of yours, which is lovely. But I mean, there's several things I see your book has in common with his, but his is kind of billed as a self-help guru, productivity guru book <laughs> on the surface, but is in its content a kind of rage against that whole industrial <laughs> complex, you know, right, right. Uh, productivity. And, and your book similarly, I think is the subtitle is very engaging to people who are surfing the menu of self-help books at the bookstore. It's kind of a Trojan horse of a book. You kind of, if you come for the self-help, you actually get something that's totally radical and revolutionary, like what you've just finished describing, which is so profound and beautiful. So again, it's just, it's a, it's a wonderfully effective thing. I said I want to talk about your mom. Well, in the dedication, at least, you say, let's see, for my father, Paul, who coined the term low anthropology, and my mother, Mary, who remains its, its exception, which is a, a poetic and beautiful thing to say about your mom. <laughs> Shout out to Mary, who I've not had the privilege of meeting. But, I, I you know, just, I wanted to talk about the exceptions yeah. uh, to low anthropology. You mentioned the saints. Exception is probably not the right descriptor. As mm. you said, the more saintly you become, the more aware you become of your need for grace and, and all the rest. But let me throw a kind of word cloud at you. There is one paragraph towards, maybe maybe a paragraph and a half towards the back of the book about sanctification. You know, and this, yes. is, just, this is just Zach's <laughs> opportunity to, to push back on the Mockingbird stuff. So the word cloud is kind of sanctification, holiness, spiritual disciplines, theosis, divinization, you know, all these things. And I know you've had this conversation a thousand times before, but can you expand a little bit, I guess, on how saints fit into a low anthropology? Well, I love my mom and I, you know, she's got foibles just like the rest of us, yeah. but she's certainly been a, an agent of grace in my own life as a, just the, uh, and, and people who've had great moms know what that's like. And the, the way I would, I'd say a couple different things. I think that First of all, I don't want a low anthropology to be synonymous with cynicism about mm -hmm. the human condition or a kind mm -hmm. of a nihilistic sin is the only thing that's true about a person or limitation is not. Because I do think we're creatures who are made by God with, an, with dignity and, and gifts. And, and for me, a low anthropology sets the way that it's worked in my, my own life, and I see it working in other people's lives, is to put you in a place where you can have look at the beautiful things God accomplishes through other people mm. with awe and wonder and excitement and inspiration and be excited about it and not rather than expectant of it and yeah. resentful when it, there's not more of it. Yeah. Because I have seen works of otherworldly charity and goodness and holiness 
you know, I'm a, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've run into some people who the only way to describe them was because, gosh, that person just seems to be have some sort of aroma of holiness that I can't mm -hmm. really account for. Mm -hmm. And I want to be around them. Mm -hmm. And I trust them, even though I don't know them that well. And so I think I'm hoping a low anthropology, instead of a, a kind of the way that a high anthropology often works out in the church, is we just start to either police one another or we just become massively, we, we police ourselves and we suppress things and we split into three or four different types of people and all sorts of hiding goes on and, and everyone feels oppressed. Um, that I want to I, I want to do everything I can to shore us off from that, while also allowing for the fact that God uses people to do work in the world. I can't be a hundred percent certain of what's going on with anyone, and I, I I don't want to write the script or always have some sort of a negative ending written mm -hmm. because because my actual experience of the world is to see God's hand at work through in acts of beauty and truth in and 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 love that I that bowl me over and make me want to keep going, you know? Yeah. I'd say the other thing is one thing I would change about the book, if I could, I don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. I think any kind of view of the Holy Spirit, a low anthropology has to, in order for it to not be hopeless in any way, we have to see God as at work and working in the lives of human beings and in our own lives in all sorts of interesting ways. I think we get into trouble, or I, I feel like that there's, there is a... Um, some sort of default mode to ascribe to ourselves more moral capability than we have, especially as Christians. And I've seen that do enormous damage. And I see that the, the fruit of deconstruction and the sort of out of 90s evangelicalism, I, I largely see as, as, as a result of that, mm -hmm. um, a, a failure to take into account the ongoing sin in the life of a believer, meaning the ongoing need for God's mercy and Holy Spirit to accomplish good things in the world. Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that, to me, the low anthropology articulates the heart out of which, like, holiness has to grow. Mm. So, like, imagine somebody who has, someone who outwardly practices all of the same you know, spiritual disciplines as Mother Teresa, but is kind of a jerk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is kind of a jerk probably because they have lost a tether to the low anthropology. They've lost a hold of the fact that they are just as much in need of of grace as anyone mm -hmm. else. You know, I mean, like, I think we you know, there, there's people that we know in the world who are like, you know, I get up and do 60,000 pushups every day before 4am and then I pray for an hour and then I, you know, but for whatever reason, Mark, they Mark still, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, for whatever reason, like they still lack that aroma of holiness you know, that a lot of things that on the surface appear to be virtuous habits appear not to be contributing to their sanctification in a way that makes me want to be more like that person. So I think to me, there's a, a, there's some kind of, there's a paradox here for me, the way in which low anthropology is, is helpful is it articulates the kind of core. You cannot ever attain a level of holiness or sanctification. That means that I no longer have a need for low anthropology. I no longer yeah. have a need, but the paradox is that to me that that doesn't also mean that 
you are unable to attain more sanctification and holiness. And no, that yeah. in and of itself contributes to the joy that you can experience in life. You know, so I'm just, I'm thinking of, I get, I'm thinking of the college students that come to you. You, mm. you have a, a lovely description of what, of this college student that comes to you who's discovered RUF or whatever it is at the university is blown away by an other centered community and Christians that aren't idiots or whatever it is. And then mm -hmm. they come out the other side and they get bruised and wounded by a, a culture that's obsessive about perfectionist, you know, that they be perfect and, and stuff. So I, I guess my question is, is there a better way? Like, how do you answer that student who comes to you instead and says, I want to be like Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa seems really happy. Yeah. I want to experience that kind of joy. Well, I think I'd, I, it would be great to have more of students like that. Usually I just have students that I want. I'd, the baseline is more like I just want to be less... <laughs> less like I am right now yeah and not wanting to kill myself yeah. the I think you do have to acknowledge by the way that that the that the the again the air we breathe is this sort of American improvability that can get imported into the church in such violent and also kind of deceitful fashion that air on the other side of it is is makes sense and I don't, don't want to say it, it's not always excusing it but one of the things I've been drawn to in the sort of lit liturgical church, there is a, 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 some promise there. There is some formation there that I think is that does remind a person of their low anthropology while also looking to God to provide a real hope and victory in the midst of like life's real challenges. So what do I say? I mean, I, I want people to engage with the disciplines. I want people to read their Bibles more. I, I'm even in favor of sort of... You know, small group Bible study and going to church much more often. I, th I think these are really good things. I just want folks to do it out of freedom and not not as a sort of a, not as a way to somehow game the system and and optimize themselves spiritually. And I think that mm -hmm. part of that involves just having a good mentor or spiritual figure in life who doesn't take themselselves too seriously. And I've noticed over the years, you know, I've watched kind of people who've gone through these things. They do get to a place ultimately of a little bit more freedom and being like, you know, I really love God. I want to know more, and and you you want to see you want to say it's time read your Bible. You know, like mm. go on a retreat at a monastery. Like there mm -hmm. are there are resources we can draw on. I am just also want to never abandon the the fact that the culture in which we live is 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 standing ready, willing, and able to co-opt yeah. those resources <laughs> into a ladder of moral striving that we, we underestimate that at our own peril. But ultimately, you know, Zach, the book was not, I mean, I, I'm being completely transparent here. It was not written to further some kind of eccentric theological view of Christianity. It was really trying to make a case for Christianity in any form mm -hmm. <laughs> and sort of be like, here's why you could go, go to any, you know, like, you don't have to become a quote unquote mockingbird type of Christian. I mean, I have my own feelings about sure spiritually helpful practices, but I, I just want God and faith in God to be emotionally intelligible to people who have, have come to view it hot, with a knee jerk hostility. And, and this is this great source of comfort and hope in my life and in, in a world that is so hopeless and so full of despair and 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 really drowning in its own high anthropology mm -hmm. 
Well, it's it's a it's a fabulous book, Dave. I'm really grateful that it exists. I'm grateful that you went through whatever it is you had to go through to get it in the world, your family, whatever they had to go through to get it in the world. I'm grateful that it exists. I, I deeply enjoyed it, was edified by it, and we'll keep extra copies on my shelf to oh. to give away as people come across my path, and, and you know, <laughs> a lot of them do. I think it is. I mean, I commend it to, to anyone listening to, to not only read, but I think that as, you know, as a pastor myself, I am always desperate for this category of book, which is the category of book that if you were you know, if you were doing all of the kind of academic style theology stuff, it would be four times as long because it has that kind of depth to it. Like it, there's, there's, but it's not, it's anybody can pick this up. I think it's a very accessible, easy book to engage with. And there's a, and that doesn't come at the cost of its depth. That's exactly why I, that's another way I wrote it. I needed something myself in my own ministry with people that I didn't have, or I had stuff that had too many presuppositions that were sort of outdated. And I wanted something I could hand to people who are, who, who, who needed, needed to start a little further back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's a good way to put it. Well, last quick question, any piece of culture that you've consumed very recently that you Rec- that you commend to the world? Any TV show, stand-up comedy special, book you've read, <laughs> podcast you've listened to? The book I've read that I keep telling everyone to read that I absolutely adore is Nick Cave's book, Faith, Hope, and Carnage. Okay. And it's about, Nick Cave is an Australian singer-songwriter. Oh, Nick Cave. Oh, yeah, Nick awesome. Cave. Yeah. That sounds amazing. And he's, he's, got a, he's got a newsletter called The Red Hand Files where he just answers fans' I, questions about life, not about music. Nick has lost two different children, and he's mm-hmm. always written about faith matters. But this time, he, it's he's, he's not just a spectator, shall we say, or not just a disinterested observer or using Christianity for a narrative potency. He's he's become a deeply religious person and he says i'm interested in traditional christian ideas about sin and redemption and he says it in such a poetic but slightly left-handed way that i think it's a a deep value to anyone looking to address today's real people um, with real questions about life and death and jesus and i also would say though that if you do pick it up skip the first chapter which is which is which is sort of gets into the weeds about a recent album of his. And it's great. Go back and read that chapter. <laughs> but if you want to start with the stuff that I'm talking about, start at chapter two. Great. Yeah. I love a specific recommendation. <laughs> love, yeah. It. Yeah. love it. Well, thanks, Dave, man. This is fun. It's good to catch up. Good to talk. Thank yeah, you, Zach. This is, this is great. Thanks so much. It's really, I, I love the Living Church, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to sort of contribute from afar. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you enjoy this show, if you've got some Lenten alms left to spare, why not become a monthly supporter of the Living Church Podcast? Go to anchor.fm forward slash living dash church and click support, or just click the link in the show notes today. In two weeks, tune in for a special hot takes episode with ACNA Bishop Todd Hunter, theologian Nigel Bigger, and other Episcopal and Anglican leaders on forgiving debts. What does it mean to forgive? How do we do it? And for ministers, especially, forgiving after atrocity, forgiving other Christian leaders who have hurt you, receiving God's forgiveness for yourself. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.